there is a, a disinformation program literally for everyone, no matter who you are and what, what your interests are, uh, what your beliefs are, uh, which, which way you're focusing. There is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into the way that they want you to think. You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to the Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joe. I'm Scott. And we're continuing our discussion with Laura. Yes, thanks for having me. In last week's podcast, we began a discussion of Gurdjieff. We were looking at some of the things that Gurdjieff wrote in his book, Life is Real. And we were, Laura has been pulling out details that have been ignored or glossed over by uh, pretty much everybody else. We began by looking at... Uh, some of Gurdjieff's last words to Madame de Salzman on his deathbed. He said to her about his writings, the essential thing, the first thing, is to prepare a nucleus of people capable of responding to the demand which will arise. Laura made the comment that she felt that Gurdjieff was having something of a prophetic moment, that he was able to see something of the future and what was going to happen. He saw that there was going to be a need for the development of a group of people who were working to see the world as objectively as possible. She also pulled out an overlooked quote from the same book, Life is Real, where Gurdjieff was recounting an experience that he'd had on the 6th of November out in an area on the edge of the Gobi Desert. And during this account, he writes, I was very much interested then, and even now, my interest has not entirely vanished in increasing the visibility of distant cosmic centers many thousand times through the use of a medium. Well, when we read this, it brought to mind a certain other experiment that's been going on for the last few years, that Laura has been conducting a scientific experiment, which is also the terms that Gurdjieff used. He was talking about his own telepathic abilities and how in this experience out in the desert or on the edge of the desert, he was looking for a way to achieve some sort of self-memory, self-remembrance, where he was able to look at himself, look at his life, see what he should have done in any moment, and use it to see what he should do in the present moment. He realized that the way to do this was to take this telepathic ability that he had developed, which had been his means of attaining, obtaining what he needed in life, this ability to influence people and to say that he wasn't going to use it anymore for that purpose. And the one purpose that he allowed himself to continue to use it was in scientific investigation. And the scientific investigation, one of the instances or the examples that he gives is what I just mentioned, increasing the visibility of distant cosmic centers many thousand times through the use of a medium. So we'll pick up from there. What is interesting about the way that he phrases this, distant cosmic centers, is the very fact that in our own experimental work, you know, where we 
we have the so-called Cassiopeian communication, they describe themselves as we are you in the future. And they talk about thought centers. And, of course, it is extremely distant, cosmically speaking. So one can't help but wonder or to draw a comparison between what Gurdjieff must have been doing using his abilities as a hypnotist and his also his, his tele- telepathic abilities in this mediumistic uh, enterprise, which nobody seems to be talking about <coughs> if they are aware of it. And then, as, as I said last week, the, uh, the result of these thoughts that he was having at that particular period of time, was that his aims split into two main goals. He had, first of all, the uh, his primary aim, which was uh, described as to investigate from all sides and to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man. And he now had the second aim, which was that he must discover at all costs some manner or means for destroying in people the predilection for suggestibility which caused them to fall easily under the influence of mass hypnosis. The important point of, uh, of this realization that Gurdjieff had, which so many people fail to, to really uh, consider and to think about, is the fact that he tells us that he came to these ideas, he came to these understandings as the result of memories of the sight of all sorts of terrors flowing from the violent events which I had witnessed, and finally from accumulated impressions arising from conversations with various revolutionaries in the previous several years, and that these memories and conversations had crystallized in him, little by little, as he writes, besides the previous unique aim, that unconquerable aim to try to help people to learn how to overcome the influence of mass hypnosis. Well, the first thing uh, about that that occurs to me is that um, it's a long way from Gurdjieff's description of, uh, of I suppose, what, what we understand as spiritual work is a long way from the New Age naval uh, gazing and uh, ascension and, and various other kind of uh, blissful states. I mean, he describes it as, uh, I mean, his life is a... Is a it was a very interesting one, a very, a very hard one, where obviously he, he, as he described himself, he underwent many difficult uh, trials and got shot uh, at least twice and had various other uh, unpleasant experiences. And it was these experiences that brought him uh, to this point of clarity and of understanding. And he also mentions that one of the things that brought him to this point was um, talking with revolutionaries and, and, and other, other people that, that, you know, that were... For, by, by a standard rule, were very interesting and perhaps very, uh, you know, very driven people. But then he follows that up by saying that this brought him uh, to the, the the second aim, which was to understand uh, how to prevent people from uh, falling foul of mass uh, psychosis or hypnosis. Well, and, and one has to think about you know the, the perspective. I mean, to, to really understand what he must have been thinking, the perspective of a, a so-called revolutionary. A revolutionary is an individual generally who who is seeking ways and means to revolt against a mass hypnosis. And obviously, he was having conversations with them and and, the, and their frustrations with with achieving the goals of throwing off the yoke of mass hypnosis and and mental domination and the power of the global elite were the concerns with which Gurdjieff was concerned. These are are things that concern us today also. Probably also saw that uh, large numbers of those revolutionaries were perfectly willing to engage in the same sort of mass suggestibility 
that the other side was using, and he came to the understanding that this was a cycle well, it, that had to be broken out of. Yeah, and the other thing is that maybe the, he, he may have met revolutionaries who themselves were victims of mass exactly. hypnosis, who were being controlled, and that, mm-hmm. in, in, in fact, this idea that, uh, I mean, we talk a lot uh, on the science page about the idea of, you know, overthrowing the Bush regime, and that this idea of, of, of changing this world is, is essentially can be can be uh, a result of of the the propagation of of of, of illusion or, or a type of hypnosis where people think that if they can just take back the country and take back the government everybody's going to be uh, the world's going to turn out fine and everything will be yes, rosy exactly but um these two things that he that he came to the the first are the two unconquerable uh, aims that he that he spent his life or, or eventually tried to uh, to to achieve um the first one being understanding the nature of the life of, of, of humanity, and the second one uh, uh, being uh, how to prevent people from falling under this mass hypnosis. Uh, perhaps what he kind of concluded or saw in stark reality was that if nothing's done, then the, then the purpose of life on Earth, or the purpose of human life on Earth, is to simply be v- victimized or, or, or uh, subjected to this mass hypnosis and used for whatever purposes... The powers that be. Well, then he, uh, getting back to what you just said about the so-called New Age ways and means of, of achieving enlightenment, which is giving over your will to a belief system and and uh, contemplating your navel or chanting Om or just think nice thoughts or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Finding a, a fountain of bliss. Yeah, Gurdjieff concludes this little discussion by saying, So the idea which flashed into my consciousness on the evening of November 6th consisted of the following. In all probability, my experience during the last few days of horrible despair and the unusually intense struggle of inner forces which expressed itself this morning in an almost delirious self-reasoning is really nothing else than the direct outcome of the self-reasoning that transpired in me when in an almost similar state 30 years ago on the edge of the Gobi Desert. So when I had more or less recovered, I began just from here to continue my researches, but now for two definite aims instead of only one. And then he begins to discuss you know, how he undertook to do this, uh, that he has already written in some detail in, in the in one of the books of the third series of his writings, and he will say that only after some years I found it necessary to originate somewhere an institution for the preparation of helper instructors in order to be able to put into the lives of people what I had already learned. So he was in the process of doing this, and he had selected Russia to be the appropriate place for this purpose, and then, of course, the Russian Revolution arose. So that is... What Gurdjieff talked about in terms of who he was and where he came from. Now, the problem is, as we've already mentioned, is that uh, most people involved in fourth-way works don't necessarily uh, follow any of this sort of thing because, uh, you know, as it happens, we have uh, several friends and, and members of our discussion groups, you know, who are involved to some extent as, as a corollary activity with some Gurdjieffian-type uh, schools. Uh, we have a couple in the United States, 
And so we we understand what kinds of work they do and and what their focus is on. And we also have a couple in Europe uh, so that basically we we have an insight into how the the fourth way schools are are following the so-called teachings of Gurdjieff. And uh, from what we have been able to to glean from this information is is that some way somehow they they seem to have really lost the essence of what Gurdjieff was really all about and what made him the way he was. Now there is another interesting um, perspective on this. It comes from Carlos Castaneda uh, in his in his book The Fire from Within. Now there's been a lot of um, discussion or argument or dispute about who or what Don Juan Matus really was. Was he a real person? Uh, did Was he a real teacher? Did Carlos Castaneda have contact with a real, um, a real seer? Or was he just making things up? Because, of course, you know, the last years of Castaneda's life, it became fairly obvious that uh, whatever had happened to him wasn't a very good thing because he went down a road that was... Uh, was not conducive to fulfilling any kinds of benevolent aims. Nevertheless, we can almost compare uh, Castaneda to to Uspensky in the sense of, of the decline of their abilities because you know neither of them was able to fully give up self-importance. I have always suspected that there was a combination of elements in what Castaneda wrote in his creation of Don Juan. I, I think that uh, Don Juan may have been a real individual, but that he was also semi-mythical, that uh, ideas that Castaneda himself formulated, or which came to him in a creative way, maybe even telepathically, were put into the mouth of Don Juan, uh, in addition to you know a possible real individual uh, who did teach some things along... Uh, a certain line. So I think that uh, when you look at this, you have to look at it as a creative process. But the point is, is to, when you're reading it, to to think about the fact that among the sources that Castaneda may have tapped for his work may, in fact, have been Gurdjieff himself. Uh, because there are many things that come through in, in what Castaneda writes that are so similar to what Gurdjieff was writing. And, and, of course, the time period was such that he could easily have borrowed some of this information and incorporated it into his southwestern mythos, uh, putting it into the mouth of Don Juan, as I said. In this sense, I think it's important to to look at this uh, book, The Fire from Within, where Carlos Castaneda writes about the subject of petty tyrants. Because as we have just read from from Gurdjieff, it was, in fact, petty tyrants that brought Gurdjieff to his level of understanding that made him, you know, uh, see things as he saw them and gave him his unconquerable drive to to uh, pursue these two particular aims. And in this uh, in, in this chapter on petty tyrants in, in the book, The Fire from Within, uh, Castaneda, Castaneda's Don Juan uh, tells us about the seers of the conquest, as he calls it, or the new seers. He says, the new seers recommended that every effort should be made to eradicate self-importance from the lives of warriors. I have followed that recommendation, and much of my endeavors with you has been geared to show you that without self-importance, we are invulnerable. And of course, you can see that uh, self-importance is 
undoubtedly what Gurdjieff was referring to when he was talking about he could see how he had done things in his life and followed certain courses of action, but they you know, always ended badly because he was not able to use that hindsight 2020 because how many of us through our own self-importance, you know, do so many things in our lives that hindsight tells us, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been so proud. I shouldn't have been so arrogant. I shouldn't have been so pushy. I shouldn't have been this, shouldn't have been that, you know, I shouldn't have been stupid. And it's generally self-importance, believing that in the moment when we are caught up in that moment and caught up in the, in the reactionary nature of our being, uh, that we are in command of ourselves. So Don Juan further says, self-importance can't be fought with niceties. He said that seers, old and new, are divided into two categories. The first one is made up of those who are willing to exercise self-restraint and can channel their activities toward pragmatic goals which would benefit other seers and man in general. The other category of seers consists of those who don't care about self-restraint or about any pragmatic goals. It is the consensus among seers that the latter have failed to resolve the problem of self-importance. And right here you see the difference between you know the two approaches, the approach of Gurdjieff and the approach of the work and the approach of the so-called you know, New Age navel-gazing crowd. The New Age navel-gazing crowd don't care about self-restraint they don't care about learning and working. And they certainly don't have any real pragmatic goals. Their goals are for themselves alone. They want to achieve peace, tranquility, and they think, of course, that if they do this, that somehow, some way, it's going to make everything all nice and peaceful all over the world. And they in, in no way consider uh, the forces of nature and the way the universe wishes to conduct its own activities in the cosmos. And they certainly aren't in engaged in any pragmatic goals to help humanity. Although they claim that they are. Oh, certainly they claim they are. But pragmatic They're means... They're going to bring peace to the world by... Pragmatic means practical, to actually you know, mm-hmm. do something you know, useful and worth... I mean, it, it's one thing to sit there and say, okay, we're going to all gather together, we're going to contemplate our navel, and we're going to have uh, you know, meditation for world peace. What is pragmatic about that? Absolutely nothing. Well, it does nothing. And I mean, as, as a comparison, for example, between that, between you know, a group of people getting together, meditating, and hoping that they're going to stop war, and someone writing an essay or an editorial and putting on a website that exposes uh, the folly of war and the fact that it's being pushed by, which might reach yeah. one person who might not go to war and might save their life. And there's, 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 a, yeah, there's, there's a, a big pragmatic. difference, exactly. So having divided the seers into the old and, uh, or into the two categories, he also says about this that self-importance is not something simple and naive. On the one hand, it is the core of everything that is good in us, and on the other hand, it is the core of everything that is rotten. To get rid of the self-importance that is rotten requires a masterpiece of strategy. Seers through the ages have given the highest praise to those who have accomplished it. So then they have a little further discussion, and uh, Carlos Castaneda talks about... uh, that he, you know, he's arguing that admonitions about self-importance reminded him of Catholic diaturns after a lifetime of being told about the evils of sin that they had, he had become callous. So Don Juan tells him, warriors fight self-importance as a matter of strategy, not principle. Your mistake is to understand what I say in terms of morality. And Castaneda says, I see you as a highly moral man, Don Juan. 
And Don Juan says, You've noticed my impeccability, that's all. Impeccability, as well as getting rid of self-importance, is too vague a concept to be of any value to me, Carlos says. And then Don Juan says, Impeccability is nothing else but the proper use of energy. Now, any of you who have read In Search of the Miraculous and have read uh, the passages that discuss conscience and morality will see that this is exactly the same concept that Don Juan is presenting here, that uh, morality is is uh, is not the same thing as impeccability, even though it can be perceived as such. Gurdjieff points out that... Uh, what is moral in in China is not moral in America. It's not an objective morality. And, and searching for an objective morality is, of course, the goal, of, uh, searching for an objective conscience. He also points out that uh, in terms of what is or is not moral to somebody who has a definite goal, a definite aim, what is moral becomes anything that furthers that goal, and what is immoral is anything that hinders that goal. And, of course, since we understand what Gurdjieff's goal was, which was to understand the nature of the human condition and to awaken people to help them to overcome the influences of mass hypnosis, you can see that what he would consider to be moral and what he would consider to be immoral would be completely different in many instances from what anybody else would consider to be moral or immoral. So then, Don Juan says, Warriors take strategic inventories. They list everything they do. Then they decide which of those things can be changed in order to allow themselves a respite in terms of expending their energy. Now this, in a sense, is, is a very prosaic description of what Gurdjieff was talking about, that he went through this, this period of mentation, seeing everything he had done and how he could have done it differently, and was in this state of you know hyper hyper consciousness, being able to see himself and to see himself seeing himself, and this amounts to, in a certain sense, taking a strategic inventory, uh, listing everything you do or have done, what you can change realistically, in order to allow yourselves a respite in terms of your energy. And then he adds that the strategic inventory covers not only behavioral patterns that were not essential to our survival and well-being. So then he says, going on talking about the uh, the strategy of becoming free of self-importance and to free up energy for those things that are essential, that is, achieving one's goal, which he has already identified as being goals, doing pragmatic things for the benefit of other seers and for humanity. The strategy is, uh, he says, worked out by the seers of the conquest, the unquestionable masters of stalking. Now, right here we have another clue. Conquest, the seers of the conquest. Now, Gurdjieff was working out his strategy in the midst of wars and revolution and talking to revolutionaries and, you know, under extremely difficult circumstances. So, once again, we see a very strong comparison. He says that the strategy consists of six elements that interplay with one another. Five of them are called the attributes of warriorship, and they are control, discipline, forbearance, timing, and will. They pertain to the world of the warrior who is fighting to lose self-importance. The sixth element, which is perhaps the most important of all, pertains to the outside world and is called the petty tyrant. A petty tyrant is a tormentor, someone who either holds the power of life and death over warriors or simply annoys them to destruction. 
Petty tyrants who persecute and inflict misery, but without actually causing anybody's death, are the first subclass of petty tyrants. They were called little petty tyrants. The second consisted of petty tyrants who are only exasperating and bothersome to no end. They are called small fry petty tyrants. And he adds that the little petty tyrants are further divided into four categories. One that torments with brutality and violence. Another that does it by creating unbearable apprehension through deviousness. Another which oppresses with sadness. And the last which torments by making warriors rage. So... We see right here that Don Juan is talking about the exact conditions in which Gurdjieff came to his realizations and his understandings, you know, conditions of being exposed to, subjected to petty tyrants. We also see that this is exactly the condition that prevails today on a global scale. In other words, we have the most marvelous petty tyrant that has ever been created, which is the global pathocratic system, the elite system of control, which is trying to... Uh, basically lead us into a third world war, probably a nuclear war, uh, in which, you know, millions, if not billions of people will die. This is uh, a fairly a fairly good little petty tyrant, as Don Juan would put it. And uh, just to give you an idea, he says, uh, what the new seers had in mind was a deadly maneuver in which the petty tyrant is like a mountain peak. And the attributes of warriorship are like climbers who meet at the summit. Usually only four attributes are played. The fifth will is saved for ultimate confrontations, such as when warriors are facing the firing squad, so to speak. And those four are control, forbearance, discipline, and timing. You know, anybody who thinks that they are going to operate in this world and bring about any change whatsoever, as Gurdjieff you know, wished would happen or hoped would happen, which was one of his unconquerable aims to help release people from this mass hypnosis, they're going to have to use control, forbearance, discipline, and timing, and they're definitely going to have to get over their self-importance. So Don Juan tells us again, one of the greatest accomplishments of the seers of the conquest was a construct called the three-phase progression. By understanding the nature of man... This is very important. This is a prerequisite to understand the nature of man. They were able to reach the incontestable conclusion that if seers can hold their own facing petty tyrants, they can certainly face the unknown with impunity and can even stand in the presence of the unknowable. We know that nothing can temper the spirit of a warrior as much as the challenge of dealing with impossible people in positions of power. Only under those conditions can warriors acquire the sobriety and serenity to stand the pressure of the unknowable. And then Don Juan finally adds, he says, let's go back to what I said about the conquest. The seers of that time couldn't have found a better ground. The Spaniards were petty tyrants who tested the seers' skills to the limit. After dealing with the conquerors, the seers were capable of facing anything. They were the lucky ones. At that time, there were petty tyrants everywhere. After all those marvelous years of abundance of petty tyrants, things changed a great deal. Petty tyrants never again had that scope, except now. Of course, at that time that uh, Castaneda was writing this, I'm sure he didn't foresee what was happening in the present time. 
The perfect ingredient for the making of a superb seer is a petty tyrant with unlimited prerogatives. And so we have a little bit of an understanding of where where the uh, the work of Carlos Castaneda overlaps the work of Gurdjieff and even the suspicion that Castaneda may have been influenced by the work of Gurdjieff. Uh, of course, uh, Castaneda asked Don Juan, do petty tyrants sometimes win and destroy the warrior facing them? Of course, and this refers us back to the time of the conquest. There was a time when warriors died like flies at the beginning of the conquest. Their ranks were decimated. The petty tyrants could put anyone to death simply acting on a whim. Under that kind of pressure, seers achieved sublime states. It was then that the surviving seers had to exert themselves to the limit to find new ways to avoid the decimation of their numbers. Well, we can learn from this or we can ignore this, but quite frankly, I think that by comparing what Gurdjieff was about and what Don Juan was writing or saying, and being put into his, what was put into the mouth of Don Juan through the writings of Carlos Castaneda, who I believe was influenced by Gurdjieff, that uh, we're looking at the very same thing at the present time. Don Juan said, the new seers used petty tyrants not only to get rid of their self-importance, but to accomplish the very sophisticated maneuver of moving themselves out of this world. And then Don Juan asks, how do you measure defeat? Anyone who joins the petty tyrant is defeated. To act in anger without control and discipline, to have no forbearance, is to be defeated. And this is what we see to a great extent in the so-called 9-11 truth movement and the anti-war movement and all the different you know, revolutionary movements. And I believe that that was something that Gurdjieff saw himself and what he was seeing when he was con- communicating with his so-called revolutionaries. Notice it says to act in anger without control and discipline. It doesn't say that you should never act in anger. Certainly, anger fuels your actions. You must be angry. How can you look at what's going on in the world and, and not, not be angry? angry? But you must act with control and discipline and forbearance. You must be angry and you must act. You must do. You must have an aim. And that is the true essence of a fourth-way work. This was Gurdjieff's fourth-way work. It was called a fourth-way work because, because he had a definite aim to help people overcome the Mass hypnosis that was leading to the destruction of this earth. This day and this time is the time for a new fourth way work. And as uh, Castaneda and Gurdjieff both uh, mentioned, uh, it's essential to understand human nature. But encompassed within human nature is, you know, all of human nature and uh, any uh, natures out there that are not necessarily uh, human like which is uh, obviously a reference to our work on psychopathy. It's essential to understand the enemy if you're going to engage in any kind of, uh, any kind of combat. And, um, and also the idea of timing, obviously, you know, uh, 
not responding rashly in anger and thereby exposing yourself or setting yourself up for defeat in advance, but uh, understanding human nature will obviously play directly into the idea of timing and how you respond and when you respond and in what way you respond. Yeah, and when you uh, when you look at how Gurdjieff describes, you know, a fourth way work, how he describes uh, his own activity, and he talks about, a, you know, a fourth way work only arises in certain periods of history when there is a particular aim, and it ri- arises surrounding that aim. A group of people have an aim; they have a goal, and this is this is the essence of the fourth way work. Now, in Gurdjieff's case, he ca- he tells us quite clearly what his goals were and, and why the, the fourth-way schools that exist today do not see the necessity for you know the use of the, the gift we have of this wonderful petty tyrant on our planet. Uh, his goals were to investigate from all sides and to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man and to discover at all costs some manner or means for destroying in people the predilection for suggestibility which causes them to fall easily under the influence of mass hypnosis. And that is exactly the work that we are engaged in doing. I mean, both of those goals have been our primary goals from from the very beginning. And I will have to say that, that in my own case that I began with the first one that Gurdjieff listed, which was to investigate from all sides and to understand the exact significance and purpose of the life of man. And it is only through that and through my use of hypnosis, again, very similar to Gurdjieff, and uh, possibly a a psychic ability. I don't claim to be a great psychic, even if, if I do communicate with myself in the future, but using that in a scientific way to access information. By doing that, I was then led through the activities of communicating with myself in the future to the second goal, which is to find a way to wake human beings up, to to destroy this ability of mass hypnosis to control and influence them. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned there, there's obviously a very direct relationship there between uh, what, with what those two aims of Gurdjieff with the, with the inner and the outer, the first one being to understand the nature of man. Obviously, to understand the nature of man is going uh, f- for a man or a woman or to understand the nature of a human being starts with themselves. And... Uh, the, thought, the second aim being then to, uh, having understood that or made some progress in understanding yourself and understanding other human beings, then to try and uh, find a way to uh, to solve the problems that are that are that are very clear. Now, um, in in terms of uh, the kind of work that you mentioned, that this is the, the work that we are engaged in. I mean, the, the the work with a capital W, this inner work of overcoming self-importance. It's it's exactly the same as a. As a, as a battle, engaging in a battle uh, uh, in a combat um, with yourself because that part of yourself that Castaneda or Don Juan calls a predator's mind is, is it's possessed uh, with exactly the same or very similar types of uh, tendencies as you'll find in an external petty tyrant. The self-interest, the the pettiness, the, the, the fickleness, the, the, uh, essentially self-importance and self-interest within yourself is what you see in, uh, in the people that are causing the problems uh, on the planet that are the bane of humanity. So once you engage in this work uh, with yourself to overcome this and, and uh, with your own internal petty turn, then you're able to uh, 
you have the skills and you have the experience to effectively combat external uh, petty tyrants. We see in the 9-11 movement that it's precisely this internal aspect that's missing. There are a bunch of people out there who who have seen that there is a mass hypnosis going on who can see the problems, but because they aren't doing the work on themselves, the 9-11 so-called truth movement... They have no skills. They have no skills, and it's rife with infighting. Mm -hmm. It's rife with the problems that come from self-importance. It's that susceptibility to to that they haven't overcome exactly. to fool themselves that allows them to be fooled by external forces. Exactly. So they're as as Don Juan says, they're defeated before they start. So if you don't begin by rooting out these aspects of yourself, then the external forces can manifest within you through them, and that's why you have to yeah. get rid of them. And you're you're like a lamb to the slaughter in terms of. Uh, your susceptibility to, to, to being conned, to being to being to having your self importance or your 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 own ego appeal to if you haven't if you haven't dealt with that and understood it and overcome it then I mean you're you're lost. And we've seen this happen to everybody. To everybody. All of them involved in it. Exactly. Yeah. They're all showing ten the, the, the evidence of, of of, of self-importance, of, of self-interest, of, of ego, and, and they're not serving anybody. As a, they're not serving humanity. They're serving themselves. Well, let me just uh, just uh, liven this up just a little bit. I don't know if it'll liven it up, but I, uh, I received a report from one of our, our members on his experience with a, a Gurdjieff group. And just to give people an idea of what many of them are uh, are into, you know, claiming to be the so-called fourth way, uh, yet not seeming to necessarily have the the pressing and unconquerable aims of Gurdjieff. So he writes to me, I went to the work camp of the local, local Gurdjieffians. They don't occupy themselves with the external terror of the global situation. But I did get to lay stones in a parking lot and to rip out old stones, did heavy work under the burning sun, which was good. I washed dishes and set tables and all manner of things which are good for the soul. And there is an impulse of goodwill towards the fellow man among these people. This creates a shift of emotional atmosphere, which again is good. And constant stress narrows one's range, I notice. So I got to feel sorrow and compassion for the world and such emotions which are normally more dissociated. And then he says, uh, there is an influence that can be felt. Receiving creates an impulse of responsibility and a wish to give back. It is painful to sense, however, that the need for a conscious core is known by these people, but there is a falling apart and a factionalization and a decrease of collinearity between the leaders, and they know it themselves. There is entropy there. And it is not obvious how to help the situation if it could be helped. Some group dynamic does exist. One participant mentioned a vision of being as a member in a structure like an ice crystal, something that was forming even in spite of our egos, a social memory complex, according to Ra, so to say. So there is something, a formation of something that comes from people who come to work together. And there could be something like that, at least transiently, but it is beyond the reach. Then he says, it's almost embarrassing to witness how even between the senior people of this group, miscommunication takes place. Sometimes it is work, sometimes it is being worked upon. Is is it through grace or is it through merit? And then he says, 
These Gurdjieffian people talk a lot about presence and being in the body and sensing. There exists also more thinking-oriented Gurdjieffians, but this branch is that of Madame de Salzman and the late Jean-Claude Lubchansky. So then he goes on, the emphasis is a lot on the experience and sensing, developing attention, internal discipline in the sense of bringing parts together, not in the sense of beating them up. There is a subtle distinction. It is assumed that the theory is known, so the groups talk about specific personal and practical experience. There were about 70 people there. About half of them were longtime participants of more than 20 years, all staying at this big farm, a big pretty place with lots of room for this many people. The duration was eight days. You get up at six, group meditation at seven, physical work, lunch, group movements, dinner, closing on either side of midnight with a sitting. They do not say meditation, even though people sit cross-legged on cushions in silence. Sometimes there are readings from workbooks, sometimes other joint activity. There's choir practice and performances, cooking, housekeeping, swimming in the river, long days, but not cruel or driving anyone past their limits. Uh, It certainly doesn't sound like it's going to do anything like what happened to Gurdjieff himself or what happened to any of the seers of the conquest or what we could all accomplish if we make proper use of our current-day petty tyrants. To finish up for this week, I'd like to get back to something Laura mentioned last week, which was the date of Gurdjieff's experience on the edge of the Gobi Desert and then his experience some 30 years later when he was writing Life is Real. The date November 6th was also significant for him because in 1927, it was the day that he finished writing his first draft of All and Everything. And in the book, Struggle of the Magicians, William Patterson writes, After three years of writing, Gurdjieff completes the first draft of All and Everything, only to then realize that for anyone not personally associated with him, the book will be unintelligible. All and everything is his legomenism to be understood and actualized in a future time. It is his last means of completing his mission, and it is unreadable. The shock of all the intentional effort he has made since his auto accident, which happened in 1924, the thought of now having to rewrite the whole book suddenly strips him of the one thing that has never failed him, self-remembering. Gurdjieff no longer has the full sensing of the whole of himself. There is nothing to do but to begin again. But his health is bad. He has this foreboding that time is running out. He wrestles with the idea of suicide. Gurdjieff finds himself at what is conceivably the lowest point of his life. Finally, freeing himself from these dark thoughts, he decides to begin the rewriting of all and everything. This is an important day in other respects. Oraj and Jesse Dwight. Oraj was one of Gurdjieff's main pupils and someone Gurdjieff had worked with very, very closely and had put in charge of the work in the United States. He says, This is an important day in other respects. Oraj and Jesse Dwight are in England for his divorce proceedings from his wife, Jean Walker. On this day, his divorce becomes final. Oraj has promised Gurdjieff that once the divorce is final, he will come to the Prairie in France. 
Instead, Oraj sends Gurdjieff a wire saying that he and Jesse are sailing back to New York. It's a crucial moment in Oraj's life, a definite fork in the road, for he has allowed Jesse to influence him to break his word to his teacher. Another point that Patterson makes in the book is a difference between Uspensky and Gurdjieff, an important difference. When the Second World War broke out, Uspensky immediately left and moved to the safety of a farm that was provided for him in New Jersey in the United States. And in doing so, he left about a 1,000 students alone to face the consequences of the war in England. And Patterson says that Gurdjieff, when he left Russia, whenever he moved, he brought all the students with him who wanted to come, and he took responsibility for them, feeding, clothing, housing them. And this says something very, very important about Gurdjieff and about his aim. All of that, what it says to me is that you know, Gurdjieff's life was a pretty difficult one, as we've mentioned. Uh, I mean, he was led by his this inner desire to know and to understand deeper truths, led him into various situations that were very difficult, which in turn crystallized in him this, this, this uh, understanding about the nature of life, that it's no walk in the park, and uh, and then how to how to do something about it, and uh, which in turn led him obviously to to this inner work, and um, then to trying to understand how he could essentially convey this to to humanity. And uh, he he talked about this mass hypnosis, and this is you know this is a fairly innocuous term, but this mass hypnosis. Uh, I mean, we can read into it that. Gurdjieff understood that uh, this wasn't a, a benevolent hypnosis. This was a situation where uh, the masses of humanity were being uh, deceived and hypnotized onto their own destruction. I mean, it's the only really, really logical uh, explanation as to why Gurdjieff was driven to embark on, in, in later life, his, his, his efforts to convey this understanding and this work and this understanding of human nature and the problems of human nature and the problems of life to, to as many people as possible. And he established his, his school uh, in France and in, in America. And this was a, an impossible task, I mean, to try and convey this to, to, to ordinary people. And he, he certainly understood that. But he, he, he embarked on it anyway because he must have seen something extremely uh, negative about the, the nature of uh, life on Earth and the nature of humanity and uh, and where it's heading and its future. And he talks about uh, a little bit about the future and about at a specific point in time when a need will arise and that uh, a group of people need to be formed to uh, to to uh, to cater to this need that will arise. And, uh, I mean, all of it just conveys to me the, the, the extreme uh, seriousness of, of what Gurdjieff understood about life. One of the ways to form yourself comes in how you look at suffering. If there's one thing that's clear in this brief recap that we've given of Gurdjieff's life, it's that he went through a tremendous amount of suffering and he saw a tremendous amount of suffering in the world. And back on the 6th of November, 1927, when Araj didn't go to the Priory and he took the decision to return with his young wife to New York, Gurdjieff wrote him a letter. The subject of the letter was suffering, and he explained in the letter the difference between voluntary suffering and intentional suffering. 
There's suffering and you will not be able to avoid suffering. But what you need to understand is that you can choose your suffering. And by choosing this suffering, you then begin to build that, that body inside that will align you with truth. And the choice is up to you. Well, we hope that answers some of our forum members, our readers' uh, questions. Um, as Henry mentioned, if there are any further questions or topics that you want us to discuss, then try and be a little bit more specific, perhaps, if you have specific uh, interest. Um, but other than that, uh, we're going to leave it there, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.